0: Well, this morning we're going to jump back into Romans chapter 12, and so take your Bibles and turn there, Romans chapter 12. And now we've been walking through the book of Romans for some time, and, and the last few weeks we've been covering Paul's exhortations from verses 9 through 13. And this set of verses, really, we've broken down very slowly because those verses give commands that sort of encompass the entire Christian life. Everything that a Christian is can be contained in verses 9 through 13 of Romans chapter 12. And then Paul goes on from there in verses 14 down through the end of the chapter, and this section is really what we're going to call the Christian distinctives. They're things that make us unique as Christians. Uh, they're, they're, they're parts of these that are, that are uh, these, these commands are commands that make us totally different from anyone else in the world. They're an important section of commands. So look with me at verse 14, and we're just going to start here. He says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. that's our verse for this morning. And if you look at this whole section from 14 down through 21, Paul comes to the conclusion in 21, and he really summarizes the entire section with that verse. He says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, the text this morning is Romans chapter 12, 14, and it's a very interesting text. It's an important verse. He says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. John John Calvin, in his commentary on this passage, said this. He said, Although there is hardly anyone who has made such advance in the law of the Lord that he fulfills this precept, no one can boast that he is the child of God or glory in the name of a Christian who has not partially undertaken this course and does not struggle daily to resist the will to do the opposite. (laughs) That's a really interesting quote. When you hear that Command, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. That's a difficult command to obey, isn't it? It is a radically difficult command to obey. We live in an age when almost everyone feels persecuted most of the time. If you have any questions about that, just jump on Twitter. (laughs) Everyone feels persecuted on Twitter, right? That's constant. And I want to give you two stories just to frame this, right? Here's two stories of what, these are true stories. First, imagine that you're on the freeway, you're on the five, and someone cuts you off, and they, they, you slow down, and then they cut you off a second time, cut you off a third time. It's intentional. You're not sure why, but they just keep doing it. How do you respond to that? How do you respond to that? And here's a second story. Imagine your husband and children or your wife and your children are on a camp out, and a crowd of people shows up at the campsite, a group of people shows up at the campsite and begins to threaten them, your family, and so they jump into the family car. But the crowd pours gasoline on the car and lights the car on fire, burning your family members to death. How do you respond? Now, both of those are true stories. I'll tell you, in the first story, the person who was cut off eventually pulled out a gun and shot into randomly into the back of the car that had cut them off, injuring, critically injuring a nine-year-old child. In the second story, the remaining family members, who hadn't been killed, forgave the murderers and continued on with their lives, seeking to share the gospel with them. Now, How can you have such a massive difference between, in response to suffering? One is vengeance, and the other is mercy. How can there be such a huge difference in how we respond to suffering? And the answer, of course, is Jesus, right? Jesus makes it possible to obey the command to bless those who persecute you, to bless them and to not curse them. I want to look at how. How do we do this? I think reading this verse, it's fairly easy, right? It's not hard. There's no, like, difficult exegesis. You don't have to be a Greek scholar. It's plain, but how do we do this? That's the problem. So I want to look first at point one, blessing rather than cursing. Blessing rather than cursing. And We see our responsibility, right? We're called to bless. Those who are persecuting us as Christians should receive blessing from us, from our hand. We should care for them. And of course, the world curses those who are unkind to them. The world curses them. We see this everywhere. People want revenge Right? They want revenge when they've suffered. They want blood for blood. They want to get their pound of flesh. They want justice. Right? You hear phrases like this. You can't treat me like this. If you do that, I will get you back. Right? We hear these things. How dare you act this way toward me? We hear this stuff, don't we? I mean, as, as just people in the world, this happens constantly all around us. And we can tend in the same direction. We can be prone in our hearts to cursing people who mistreat us. And yet Paul tells us that as Christians, we are not to curse those who persecute us, that we should bless them instead. And he doesn't just say, just be silent, right? Don't just not curse them, <laughs> just stay silent. He says, not only do you not curse them, but you offer them a blessing. Oh, that's an amazing command, actually. Now, a word for blessing has a lot of different meanings, and I wanna help you understand what it means. The word in Greek literally just means to speak well of somebody, just to speak well, to say nice things, God blesses people, doesn't he? Remember the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What did God do to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? He blessed them. What does that mean? Well, he spoke words of blessing, of well-being over them as his children. He blessed the nation of Israel through them, right? He spoke words of well-being. Jesus blesses the little children who come to him. What does that mean? It doesn't mean he like pats them on the head, although he probably did, but he spoke words of well-being to the children who were with him. He also blesses the bread at the Last Supper when he feeds the 5,000. We just covered this in Mark, right? He, he blesses the bread. What's he doing? Well, he's speaking words of well-being to those who will receive the bread. That's, that's what he's doing. He's speaking a pronouncement of blessing over it. But we don't just see God blessing people. We also see people blessing people in the Bible. You remember this? Hebrews tells us that Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Remember that? Abraham shows up, Melchizedek blesses him. What is that? Well, he just speaks a blessing over him. Words of well-being to Melchizedek, I mean, to Abraham. That's what Melchizedek does. Elizabeth blesses Mary for her fortune in being the woman chosen to carry the Messiah, right? So we have these words of blessing, words of well-being that are spoken by different parties over people in the Bible. So the idea here is that instead of pronouncing a curse on someone uh, from a heart of hatred, there's a pronouncement of well-being over that person from a heart that is caring for that person. So what does that mean just practically? Well, there's three things that I think blessing is, okay? The first thing is that we are genuinely praying for God's care for them. That's important. We are genuinely praying for God's care for that person. Now, where where is that going to come from? (laughs) And I don't mean through gritted teeth, like, I hope you care for them. (laughs) Where does it come from that you would genuinely pray for God's care over a person? It comes from a heart of love, doesn't it? You have to love that person. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, verse 9, he says, let love be without hypocrisy. It's not a fake. You're not wearing a mask. You're not just putting that on. You're actually caring for and praying for God's blessing on that person who is persecuting you. That's the first thing. Secondly, it means speaking blessings to them. You speak blessings to that person. What comes out of your mouth to them is a blessing. So it doesn't mean like saying just nice words to them that are not real. It means truly blessing them with your words, being genuine from the heart and expressing a care for that person. That may be the gospel if they're an unbeliever where they don't know Christ. And so in blessing them, you share with them the reality of Christ who loved you and gave his life for you. And now they can also know the same Christ and be saved. That could be the blessing that you speak to them. But it's more than that. It's kind words from a tender heart. And third, blessing someone means to be the means of bringing that blessing of God to them. If, if you're praying for God's well-being over that person and you want to bless them, then you are part of the solution in bringing that blessing to them. Maybe you provide for them, you give them a meal or you give them food or you help them with something, providing blessings where we are able to do that, okay? So that's what blessing is. And what's interesting is Jesus gives us the exact same command, doesn't he? If you take Christ's command that Mike read for us, turn over to Matthew chapter 5, this is one of those texts that maybe you just read fast during your quiet time. This is an amazing passage. In Matthew 5, Mike read it for us this morning. Jesus says, You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And that's what the Pharisees taught. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. <laughs> And pray for those who persecute you. Why pray for those who persecute you? Because what are you doing? What are you praying for them? You're praying praying blessing, right? You're saying words of well-being over them. This is exactly the same idea that Paul is expressing in Romans 12, 14. That you're praying that God would care for them, that God would bless them. That's what's taking place. And so we are called by God to love our enemies and from a heart of love to bless them. And to pray for them to pray for God's blessing upon them. You say, that's hard. That's hard. Maybe someone has hurt you. I'm, I'm confident someone's hurt you <laughs> because all of us have been hurt. And what do you do when someone's hurt you? What do we do when someone has, has injured us? Well, it's easy for us to curse them and condemn them and be cruel to them, either in our thoughts or in our words or in our actions, but Paul says, no, bless them. You say, that's incredibly difficult. They say, yeah, that's hard. But Christ has given us an example of this, hasn't he? Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm sorry, chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Turn there with me. Peter here is, is encouraging suffering believers who are being persecuted. And, and he tells them, if you do what's right and you're harshly treated, you endure it with patience. That's right. It's good. It actually finds favor, it finds grace with God when you do that. And in verse 21, look what he says. First Peter chapter two, verse 21. He says, "For you have been called for this purpose." When you became a Christian, you may not have known that part of the order of the things that you get to do as a Christian is to suffer. And to suffer for this purpose. Look what he says. It's amazing. You have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. What are we supposed to do? Follow after Christ in this. Jesus did this perfectly, didn't he? And this is who we're to follow. Verse 22, he says, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. He didn't sin when he was being persecuted. He didn't lie to try to get out of it, right? He he just took it. In verse 23, he says, while being reviled, while being insulted by others, he did not revile in return. He didn't respond with insult when they were insulting him. He says, while suffering, he uttered no threats, right? While, while they were crucifying him, he didn't say, you guys know I can vaporize you right now, right? I'm holding the universe together. I can take your lives right now. I've given you your lives. Don't do this to me. No, he's silent. He was quiet. And he kept entrusting himself To him who judges righteously. In fact, the words that Jesus said on the cross were not words of condemnation or cursing. What were they? They were words of blessing. Father, what? Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's remarkable. He blessed those who were persecuting him. And what Paul tells us here in Romans chapter 12 is this is what we are to be as Christians. This is what should mark us as Christians not cursing not harsh words not condemnation not evil actions to get back at the person who has hurt us no what should come out of our mouths is kindness and mercy and prayer for that person and their blessing from god and what should come out of our hands is kindness and provision and this is hard <laughs> this is hard anyone who says oh that i've got that that's not true <laughs> When we are hurting, it is difficult. There is a war in our hearts. So what's happening inside of us when we are being persecuted? When we're suffering, what's happening inside of us? This is point two on your outline, opposing forces. Opposing forces. Like everything in the Christian life, this is an otherworldly command, isn't it? No no one in their flesh could ever do this. No one could ever do this. You can do it for a short time, but to do it extensively, no one can do this. It's impossible apart from Jesus. He's the only one who can do it. And of course, we know this is what we're supposed to do as Christians, but it's incredibly challenging. There's all sorts of things and debates that wage war in our heads. You mean I'm just supposed to be a doormat? I never stand up for my rights? This isn't fair? All things that come into our heads. So what do we do? Well, the first thing we need to look at is why those things happen and that's point A our flesh. Our flesh. The natural response to persecution is anger. It's anger. And the suffering that we are enduring when we are being persecuted is unfair. And we need to acknowledge that. It really is unjust. It's very important to do this actually. It's not good trying to pretend that it's not bad, right? There are people who try to get around this by just saying, "Well, it's not bad. You know, whatever, it's fine. I don't care." I, that's that's not real. That's fake. We need to genuinely and honestly say that when we are suffering, it is unfair and it's painful, right? It is unfair and it is painful. And what happens in us in our flesh is that we are prone to desire justice. We we want justice, right? And, And actually, there's a sense in which that's actually good because justice is a good thing. We're made in the image of God, and He is a consummately just being. And so because we're made in His image, we we want justice. The problem is that we want justice, and when we don't get it, what happens? We turn to anger, don't we? We become cursing people. That's why you never have to train a child to say what? That's not fair. You don't have to train a child ever to do that. Why? Because they're built with that inside of them. They're constructed with fairness principles inside of them. And when it's not fair, what do they say? Well, it's not fair, right? Uh, This happens in every family, but you know, you have a set of cookies and children have already done all the calculations in their brain to know which cookie is the heaviest and has the most chocolate chips. And it's amazing. They can do it from like 30 feet away inside a box. And they walk to the box and what do they say? that's not fair. She took my cookie. I mean, she, because I have all daughters, but she took my cookie, right? <laughs> I think boys do the same. I've, I have no experience with that. But yeah, that what's happening there? Their little brains have this justice component, and they want something, and when they don't get it, they feel trampled upon, right? It's just not just. I didn't get what I wanted. It's not fair. Instead, what do we have to train our children? We have to train them. You're right. Life isn't fair. Bless those who get more than you, right? That's what we're training our kids constantly. Now, when we are truly treated unfairly and we're persecuted, our reaction is to sin and anger. What do we do? Well, think back to that 1 Peter text that we just looked at. We want to revile, right? We want to curse. We want to respond. We want to say that it's not fair, That's what social media actually is, isn't it? It's full of people reviling one another over some topic that they disagree about. And oftentimes, the people are on the same side and they're reviling each other, just yelling at each other, I mean, with with typing, on Twitter, right? We want that person to know they're wrong. And if we've suffered from them, we want them to suffer in equal measure. And all of those responses, all of that, is fleshly. It's fleshly. That's unrighteousness, actually, coming out of our hearts. It's not trusting God. So what is the spiritual response? And this is point B on your outline, the spirit. The spiritual response, the spirit who lives inside of us, the spirit of Christ who suffered in silence, who lives in us, is calling us to a different response. And what is that response? It's a response of blessing, to say kind words over those who hurt us rather than vengeance and cursing. But how does the Spirit do this? That's the question we have to answer. How does the Spirit change us so that the thing that our flesh wants to do is reduced and the thing that the Spirit knows should be in us happens? How does that happen inside of us? How do we turn off our demand for justice and turn on a heart of compassion? And the answer really simply is just one word. It's faith. Faith has to engage with that moment in order for us to bless those who persecute us. We have to have faith in something in order to respond in righteousness when we're being treated unjustly. Now, here's the question. What do we have to believe? What do we have to believe? I think there are three things that we have to believe if we're going to respond in righteousness when we're persecuted. And the first one is we have to believe in God's sovereignty, this is super important. You have to believe that God is in perfect control of the world. Every circumstance that comes into your life, every suffering, every persecution, every pain that you are encountering is not by accident. This is so important. It is not by accident. God is in absolute control of everything that's happening in your life. And and the Bible teaches us that explicitly. It teaches us that Psalm 115.3, the Lord is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Everything is under his absolute sovereign domain. And it teaches us that personally. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12. This is so interesting. Paul actually tells us about his suffering as an example for us. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 with me. Start in verse 7. Look what he says. In verses 1 through 6, he's boasting, not boasting because he has to, but because, not boasting because he wants to, but because he has to. The Corinthian church is turning away from the true gospel, and he's saying, listen, you need to listen to me. I'm a true apostle. It's not because I want to be anything. It's because God has made me this. And in verse 7, he says this. He says, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations... So I've, I've seen heaven, I've done all these things, I'm an apostle. For this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Now, there's lots we could take apart in that text. We could do a whole sermon on that verse. But the one phrase I want you to see is the phrase, there was given to me. Given by Who? Well, he says it's a messenger of Satan, right? So is it Satan who gave him that? Well, in one sense, yes. The messenger came from Satan, right? But who gave it to him? Look at the next verse and look what he says. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. Lord, please take it away. Paul prayed three times. And he has said to me. In other words, God repeatedly told him. What's God's answer to him? Paul says, I have this messenger from Satan. Take it away. And what's God's answer to him? Look what he says. He has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Now, that sounds nice, but what did God say to him when he said, take it away? He said, no. Who sent the messenger of Satan to Paul? God sent the messenger of Satan to Paul, and he had good purposes for it, didn't he? Look back in verse 7. What were the two phrases that get repeated there? For this reason, to keep me from exalting myself. Now, what's at the end of the verse? To keep me from exalting myself. God had a purpose in Paul's heart to send a messenger from Satan into his life. And Paul says, God, take it away. And God says, no, I won't take it away from you. You're going to suffer. You're going to hurt. So Paul sees this personally. Paul understands that this angelic messenger from Satan is under God's sovereign control. But it's not just Paul. Flip back to Acts chapter 2. You might know this verse well. Acts chapter 2. In Peter's sermon, he's condemning the nation of Israel for their crucifixion of Jesus. And he says, you crucified the Messiah. He says, you crucified the Messiah. He says, you knew he was the Messiah, verse 22. He performed wonders and signs and miracles and you knew it. Look at verse 23. This man... Now listen to this verse, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Who was sovereign over the death of Jesus? Predetermined plan and foreknowledge of who? God. Every moment of the crucifixion of Christ was not an accident. There was not one moment of that that was out of place. Nothing, nothing moved apart from God's sovereign hand. And yet what happened? Look what happens. Look at the end of the verse. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. God planned it, and who carried it out? The Jewish people, the Romans, the crowd, all of them carried out God's perfect plan. What does that mean for you in your suffering? What does that mean for you in your suffering? It means that every moment of persecution in your life, every suffering you've ever encountered, every difficulty that has ever come to you has not come to you from the evil person that lives next door to you, from the evil boss who doesn't like you, from the angry person who runs you off the road who is in control of all of those things god is in perfect sovereign control of every suffering that comes into your life and yet we have to be convinced of that if you think that something can has come into your life and it's an accident your faith will crumble your faith will crumble Because then God wasn't strong enough to stop this thing. But the Bible teaches us that God is absolutely strong enough to stop anything that comes into our lives, and he doesn't, and he doesn't do it. And that begs a question, doesn't it? What question does that beg? Is God good? Does that make God mean? Is he just a mean tyrant and he just brings pain into your life? I mean, you know when you're suffering, you know what that feels like and you hurt, and there's pain in your soul, and it breaks, and you say, God, why won't you take this away? That's what Paul was praying, wasn't it? I mean, that was his broken heart. And so, after we believe that God is sovereign, we have to believe a second thing. We have to believe God's love. This is the second thing. God loves us in our sufferings. God isn't mean when he brings suffering into our lives. He's not unkind. He's not there hurting us capriciously. There's a purpose for those things. He's not unkind. He loves us. And the question is, when I'm suffering, how do I know that God loves me? How do I know that God loves me when my life hurts? How can I possibly know that? Because everything in me is in pain. So how do I know that God loves me in the midst of my suffering? And the answer is in Romans 5.8. You guys know this verse, I hope. You know this. If you don't, turn there. Romans 5 eight It says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, I don't know if you like grammar or not, right? I like grammar. <laughs> if you don't like grammar, that's okay. Just follow along, okay? Romans chapter 5, verse 8. Look what he says. But God demonstrates. What tense is that verb in? Past, present, or future? present. It's a present tense verb. Now look at the end of the verse. Christ died for us. What tense is that? Past. So what is, God, what is Paul saying in this verse? He's saying this past event, the death of Christ for your sins, when you were still a sinner, Jesus died for you, what does that do for you in the present tense? It demonstrates that God loves you. If you have any doubt in your mind that God loves you in the midst of your pain and your suffering, God has demonstrated once and for all that he does. It's demonstrated to you. You have no question in your mind that God loves you. Why? The perfect son of God who rightfully should have condemned you to hell came to this earth, took on flesh, and took your sins and your failures off of you and put them on himself and bled to death on the cross for you. If he did that for you, he loves you. Doesn't he? He loves you. And there's no question in your mind. When you believe that reality, there is no question in your mind that God loves you. There's no question. You know he does. And he has proven it once and for all. And that love of God, Paul says earlier in chapter 5, is poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The Spirit is telling you all the time God loves you. And if you doubt it, look at the cross of Christ. And so, what do we have to do when we're suffering? First, we have to know that God is sovereign over everything that's happening in our lives. And second, we have to take a stake and pound it in the ground and say, God loves me in this. He loves me in it. And we have to hold on to that stake. Suffering feels like a tornado. Everything's breaking around you and everything is spinning. And what do we have to hold on to? In those moments, nothing in the world can give you peace. The only hope you have is that God loves you and that he's sovereign. That begs one more question, doesn't it? If he's in perfect control and he loves me, why doesn't he take it away? Why doesn't he take it away? I love my kids. If they're hurting, I would try to stop their pain. So, so why wouldn't God take away my suffering if he loves me and he's in perfect control? He has the power to do it. It's not something that he has to manufacture. He could take it away right now. So why wouldn't he? And this is the third thing you have to believe. This is point three. God's instruments. We have to believe that God is in perfect control of the circumstance and we have to believe that he loves us and what that tells us is that every person and everything that hurts us is for our good. It's for our good. God is doing a work in us through the circumstance that we find ourselves in. God is doing a work in you through that pain. That's what Paul says in Romans 8.28, right? We quote that verse all the time. That verse doesn't mean what I think people think it means. God will work all things together for good. In other words, I'm going to win the game. I'm going to get the new car. I'm going to get all the stuff that I want. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is all of the suffering that's coming into your life is good. Why? Turn to Romans 8.28 and look what he says. He says, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. All this pain in Paul's life, it was all for good. How does he know that? Why? Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. What is he doing? He's making us like Christ in pain. He's making us like Christ by suffering. And what does that tell us? It tells us that it's good, right? If the best thing for us is holiness, then the best thing he can do is cause us to be holy. And the way he does that is by stripping everything from us, sometimes hurting us. In other words, every persecutor in your life, every person who causes you pain, every single time when someone says something that they shouldn't and it hurts you and you want justice, what Paul is telling us is that person is God's hand puppet. He's God's hand puppet. He is doing to you what it is that God wants for your good. God is using that person for your good. And he is caring for you through that suffering. And Paul makes this explicit. Look at Romans 8.32. It says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. That's Romans 5.8. How will he not also with him, with the death of Christ, freely give us all things? (laughs) If he gave Jesus for us, he'll freely give us everything else, won't he? And one of the things he gives us is the blessing of suffering. And Paul knew it, because what did he say in 2 Corinthians 12? He said, for to keep me from exalting myself, the Spirit was working on his pride, and so God hurt him so that he wouldn't be proud. He gave Paul the gift of suffering to keep him from being proud. And so what do we have to believe if we're going to bless our persecutors? We have to believe that God is sovereign, we have to believe that God loves us, and we have to believe that the suffering in our life is his instrument for our good. Those three things must be trusted and believed. But here's the question, how does that help us bless our persecutors? <laughs> how does that help us bless them? Because we're still hurting, right? Well, what happens is when you realize that it's from God and that it's a gift for your good, what happens in your heart? No longer do you say, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to me. What do you say now? You say, this is the best thing that's ever happened to me. You are giving me kindness when you are hurting me. And what comes out of our heart is not anger toward that person. We just say, you don't know this, but you're God's tool to help me. And I love that because I want to grow. So I love you and I want to bless you. Lord, help them. Help them to repent. They shouldn't be sitting like this, but I just bless them. Lord, be with them. Help them as they're hurting you. Why? Because all of it's coming from God and all of it's coming from a hand of love and all of it is because God wants to sanctify me and make me more like Christ and so what I can offer that person now is the same kindness I am receiving in my suffering. In other words, we love our enemies. (laughs) We love our enemies and we bless those and we pray for those who persecute us. That is what happens when the Spirit of God engages faith with those three truths. And when we do that, what happens usually? What happens? When you bless those who persecute you, what happens? What do they say? Why are you being nice to me? (laughs) They want you to be angry back because that justifies their sin, but when you're kind to someone who's hurting you, that ticks them off. They say, Why are you being nice to me? And what's your answer? Well, because I'm a nicer person than you. No. (laughs) What do we say? It's not me. It's not me. I'm not nice. God is using you for me because I'm not nice. And he's making me more like Christ through you. You are a blessing to me. Thank you. I love you. That just makes them more angry. That's okay. What happens to them? They see that we have a hope that is beyond anything they have. And what does it make them do? 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. It makes them ask us of the hope that's in us. What a better witness of the gospel than kind people who love those who persecute them. And who gets the glory for that? Not us. Because in our flesh, we know we would just get angry. Who gets glory for all of that? God gets all the glory for that, doesn't he? God gets all the glory for that. And we want to ascribe glory to God for what he's doing in us. Not something that I've done, something he's done in me. Faith isn't mine. Faith is a gift. It's been granted to me. And so all of that is coming from him. So, what I want to do is just apply this idea. I want to look at some places to glorify God. This is point three places we can glorify God. So, where can we glorify God by loving our enemies and blessing our persecutors? And the first one I want to talk about is one that might surprise you. The first one, point A, is family. Family can be the greatest blessing of this life, but it can also be one of the most difficult things we face. It can be hard. I know many people who have suffered relationally from their family, just difficulties, right? It can feel like persecution, it can. I'm not talking just extended family, that's all hard too, right? But even in the intimate close family, it can feel sometimes like persecution. Spouses can be vitriolic and vindictive against their, their spouse, right? Parents can be harsh and unsympathetic. Kids can be disobedient and angry, What do we do when those things happen? What do we do? How do we respond? It can feel like persecution, can it? The first thing we need to do is just repent for anything that we've done that's sinful, right? I need to repent. If I've responded in harshness or anger, even if I've had a three hour screaming session from somebody else and my answer, one sentence, is harsh, what do I need to do? I need to repent. I sinned. So I need to repent for anything that is in me that's unrighteous. Second, we need to believe God's love and sovereignty and purpose in that person. (laughs) And then what do we have to do? We have to ask God to show us what he wants us to learn through that situation, right? Lord, I know this is coming to me from you. Help me to understand how I need to grow. Show me, show me. And lastly, we need to bless that person. We need to pray for them and we need to point them to Christ In love and grace. So let me just ask you this Husbands, are you doing this with your wives in love? Are you caring for them this way? When she's angry at you, do you respond in in blessing? Or do you feel sorry for yourself and respond in harshness or silence? Wives, are you doing this in respect towards your husbands? Are you respectful when he's not nice? Or are you attacking back? Do you point out his problems? Parents, are you loving your kids with tenderness? Or are you seeking to control them with harshness? And kids, are you loving your parents in submission? If there's any kids here, are you submitting to your parents and loving them? Are you doing that? Or are you secretly trying to find ways around rules? This is our calling, right, in our families. And listen, when we bless those who persecute us in the closest place that we have, it brings glory to God, doesn't it? The family flourishes, and Christ gets honor in that place. And that's what we long for. There's a couple more. Like a point B, politics. <laughs> I'm, I'm not gonna talk about politics. I'm gonna talk about how to talk about politics. <laughs> We see people at each other's throats in politics, don't we? It's just constant. It's constant. And it's getting worse. There's so much polarization right now. I mean, almost every political topic can descend into a fight almost instantly. I want to be careful here. It's not wrong to be political. It's not wrong to have political views. That's okay. We can all have political views. But when we express certain sentiments, there can often be some harsh responses, can't there? A harsh response is often expected. And what easily happens inside of us, because those are very serious things, what easily happens inside of us is that if anyone opposes us in our position, that person becomes our enemy. We would never do this in church, but when we're there and it's political, all of a sudden that person who has a different view or who opposes my view or even kind of might oppose my view becomes my enemy. They're my enemy now. And their response starts to feel like an attack and what comes out of me is just self-defensiveness and pride and cursing of that person and that person's position. And it shows itself in all sorts of ways. But what would Paul say? Paul would say, bless that person. (laughs) Bless that person. Be kind to them. If they're wrong, pray for them. Of course, pray for them. Help them to see. If they are not a Christian, goodness sakes, pray for their soul Of course they don't have good views on things. Why? They don't know Jesus. They don't have the Spirit of God. You shouldn't expect any different. You should rejoice that they're not worse than they are. And we should pray for them and bless them and care for them and point them to truth and to Christ with mercy and tenderness and compassion and kindness rather than anger. What is anger doing? It's just solidifying them in their rejection of truth. This doesn't mean you can't have an opinion, And it doesn't mean you can't express those opinions, but it softens us, doesn't it? It softens our response to controversy. We don't have to be right. We don't have to win the Twitter debate. We we don't have to do those things. We can just care for someone and bless them and realize that what they need is a deeper understanding of who God is if they're gonna be changed in those ways. And so politics can be a dangerous place for us, but we can bless instead of curse by the power of the Spirit of God doesn't that bring glory to God? You know, when the whole world is a chaos of screaming, the one who stands in the middle and says, look, we don't need to yell about this, right? Usually they get shot. <laughs> but that's the person who brings glory to God because it's the one who's being rational, right? And that's what we ought to be. So family and politics. And there's one more I want to talk about, and this is point C, enemies. Maybe you're in a situation even right now where there's someone who's sinned against you, someone has sinned against you in some way. Maybe it's a boss who refuses to give you what you rightfully deserve because you're a Christian. They don't like that, so they they don't give you the raise or they don't give you the promotion. Maybe it's a friend or a neighbor or a family member who has sinned against you in some serious way. Maybe there's someone who truly just hates you and wants to hurt you. This happens. And if there isn't someone like this right now, there probably will be in your future. we have to be prepared in our hearts to trust God and to walk in kindness and mercy toward those who sin against us. This is where our society is going. It's always been this way. And we need to be prepared to do this. We need to be prepared to respond in mercy and kindness. And the only way to do that is to get those anchors in our hearts so deep that we can say, no matter what comes to me, God is sovereign. And no matter what comes to me, God loves me. And no matter what comes to me, God is using this for my good. And then we will respond in mercy. You guys probably have heard the name, and if you haven't, I encourage you to read his book. There's a man named Richard Vermbrand. He founded a ministry called Voice of the Martyrs, and he was tortured in a Romanian prison cell by communist guards. And I want you to listen to a section of his book. It's called Tortured for Christ. Get it if you haven't read it, get it. He says this, It says, I have seen Christians in communist prisons (laughs) with 50 pounds of chains on their feet, tortured with red-hot iron pokers, in whose throat spoonfuls of salt have been forced, being kept afterward without water, starving, whipped, suffering from cold, and praying with fervor for the communists. A flower, if you bruise it under your feet, rewards you by giving you its perfume. Likewise, Christians, tortured by the communists, rewarded their torturers by love. We brought many of our jailers to Christ, and we are dominated by one desire, to give communists who have made us suffer the best we have. The salvation that comes from our Lord Jesus Christ. This is humanly inexplicable. It is the love of Christ which is poured out in our hearts. Listen, friends, we're not here yet in our nation, but it will come. It will. And if we're not ready to bless and not curse on Twitter, how will we do that when we're suffering? We won't. And so God, God in His grace, has given us training wheels. <laughs> He's given us training wheels to learn to take persecution. Persecution. And to learn to take cursing and to respond in blessing. We need to use this time and to thank the Lord for the fact that we are being pointed out and criticized. So if you're suffering in your life, this is my appeal to you. See it for what it is. God is kindly helping you. He's kindly helping you, not only for the future, but he's helping you to bring glory to him now by loving those who persecute you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your son. Lord, the one who went before us in suffering. Lord, the one who is our perfect example of pain and righteousness. And Lord, we thank you that he did this as an example for us. Lord, that we would follow in his footsteps. Lord, that when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he uttered no threats. But, Lord, he kept entrusting himself to you. Lord, I pray that you would help us as a church, as individual Christians. Lord, certainly we have suffered and certainly we will. Lord, I pray that you would grow our faith in these truths, Lord, you are sovereign over our lives, and you love us perfectly, and every suffering is an instrument for our good. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us hearts that trust those things and walk by faith in them. Lord, we can't do this ourselves, but you can do it in us. Lord, as we believe these truths, Lord, I pray that we would bless those who persecute us, that we would bless them and not curse, and that your name would be honored in our lives. Lord, we love you and thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.